40 million. That's the number of options contracts that are traded every day. That number has doubled from just two years ago. The options market is a very effective means of risk management and it is going crazy. And I'm so happy to be joined by Gavin Rowe, CEO of Watershed Technologies, who's going to give us a dissertation on options and options trading. Gavin, welcome. Stuart, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I'm thrilled that you're here. Can you give us a high level overview of the options market just as a starting point? Sure. You know, it's a fascinating marketplace. I was drawn to it. it. Stuart, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I really hadn't intended on being a trader. But as soon as I saw what was going on with options, I was too fascinated to walk away. Speaking to your audience with the insurance market, they deal with risk every day, right? And really, you know, you can conceive of an option as a term risk instrument on its own. And so you've got this broad spectrum of products that trade competitively every day and price the end of the day publicly that show in detail what the world's view is of the economic risk. And as you know, risk rises, the value of insurance contracts rises, the value of option prices rise. As risk drops, the reverse happens. And so it's a very nuanced way to get a sense of what the economic appetite is for risk. In a lot of you know, broad-based instruments, risk programs that extend well beyond stocks and stock options, start their risk pricing in the equity risk markets because it's so competitive and so well-defined. And when I opened, I mentioned 40 million options contracts. We have talked before this, that is not indicative of the number of orders that are entered, right? right? So just full full disclosure, the way that you and I got together is we have a good friend who's your chief technology officer named Tom Jevin. And, yes. and Tom and I, Tom has done his best to explain options to me. And I am, I am apparently far too dense. I didn't realize that there's options order volume that doesn't get executed. And what does that mean? What does that do to the market? So can you help me with that and help our audience understand that concept? Sure. You know, just to take a step back, you know, so we were talking about an option as, as really a, a term risk product. You can make bets or hedges on the direction of an underlying asset with options. You can make and lose money whether the underlying asset price moves at all, right? It's just a question of whether the risk appetite moves. And so, you know, a good example would be for a company that's coming up in earnings. So obviously, last night we saw a dramatic move in, in Netflix. And if your listeners haven't seen it already, it was down about 30% pre-open this morning. You can make bets on what's going to happen in the future, the value of that underlying asset. And while the options are priced in pennies, so that if a market is $1 bid at 110, each one of those options goes into 100 shares of stock. So you're actually paying $110 if you buy that 110 offer, and you're collecting $100 if you sell that one bid. But inside that marketplace, just because you want to buy, you may not be willing to pay the 110. 
And so you will see people send orders down where they say, okay, I'll pay 105 for this option. If nobody has an appetite, then a whole series of events can unfold. A broker can hold that order for you and wait to see if they find a seller. More often than not, that order gets what they call posted at the exchanges in the exchange order book. At that point, then the official public market is now 105 bid and offered at 110. And your 105 bid there is protected. If somebody trades anywhere in the country, they have to trade and they want to trade at 105 or lower, they have to sell you first. So there is a vast quantity of orders. There are things called spreads where you put two options together or you put an option in stock together. Vast myriad combinations of these that never trade because people have an interest at a certain price point that never quite fits what the market has and the, the other trick to the options is that they expire, right? Unlike stock, they don't last forever. So you may have an idea that you think is good for 30 days, but if your price point never gets hit, your order goes away. So yeah, while there are 40 million trading every day, there's a, a serious multiple over that that gets taken into that marketplace every day, you know, on the order of you know 100 or 200% over. So for the benefit of, of somebody who might, let's just say that somebody's listening and they don't really key on the jargon, right? When you say a one to 110 market, that means I can buy that option, which is the ask, right? Bid to buy, offer, right? ask right. is I'm going to pay 110. And if I sell it, I'm going to get a dollar. Right. So the right. bid, the bid side or the side I can buy at is a hundred or is one or, and then there's a spread in between there. Right. And so I can enter orders that aren't on the 110 offer, offer. price. Got I it. can put orders in and if nobody hits me, then those orders go away or I can cancel those orders, right? And so that's what you're talking about. There's a multiple of the 40 million of orders that are entered and then not, but not executed. Exactly. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, back, I, I started my career as a, as a local on the CBOE, as a market maker. All right. What's yeah, a local? I know. I love that term. Well, yeah, what's a local? Well, this is a throwback. You know, they're almost animatronic now. But back in the day, before computers had really taken over to the extent they have, there were these huge pits of men and women who would stand in there and would literally make markets as the stock underlying stock or commodity was moving. I think we've all seen pictures of, of like trading places, for example. And so I was one of those that stood in you know one of those pits. And as orders came in through brokers, they would walk out and say, hey, what's the market on this IBM call? And then we would turn around as a group and shout out what our buying price was, our bid, and what our, our selling price was, our offer. And usually it was pretty wide. We would say, uh, we'll pay $1 and we'll sell it. And this is back when we use fractions, one and one and three eighths. And so then the broker would start to laugh and say, okay, can I do any better on the bid? I've got a seller here. And he'd tease out one and an eighth bids. And it sort of squeezed the market in over time, again, trying to get the best performance for their end customer. And the name of that, I mean, that's called an open outcry market, right? right. And, and those yep. things are pretty much... They've gone away gone. and right gone because it, it's interesting. My I have neighbors on both sides. They were both traders. There are a lot of folks in Chicago. I mean, the trading capital world. There's a lot of folks who used to be in the open outcry pits that you know are no longer. So with regard to that, now in today's world, 
you know, Watershed is, is getting ready to go live here as we record this podcast. If Watershed is not operating today, if I enter an order, what happens? What's the anatomy of that order today? Well, it's actually a great question. And honestly, it's something that most people don't think about. And it's something that I really didn't think about until much deeper in my career. Back when I was a local, the marketplace was you know, relatively simple, frankly, right? There were six exchanges. Most of the products, the equity options were singly listed. They said there were really four to start with. Uh, CBOE, the one where I was at, was one of them. And each of the exchanges had a signature product. So if you wanted to trade IBM options, you had to trade them in Chicago. If you wanted to trade Amazon options, you would have had to trade them in San Francisco. Now they have what they call cross-listing, multiple listing, okay? So instead of four option markets, there are now 15 of them, okay? And on each of the 15, we have options that expire monthly, the traditional options, the third Friday of every month. But then there are weekly options. There are quarterly options. There are new products that are out to the point now where there are literally a million different calls and puts that are quoted continuously every day, every minute on 15 exchanges. The quantity of data that's produced by this industry now is just awesome. And there's just no really no other word for it. And that's it. That's at the tick level. Right. Right. On a million sure. options on 15 exchanges at the tick. What does that mean when I say I mean, by the way, Gavin, I'm using a term. I don't know what it means. What is the tick level or what what's the granularity of that data? Well, it, there's the tick, which is the, the price fluctuation. There's also sizes. So as an example, going back to our one dollar bid at one ten. Okay. The entire marketplace is sewn together by an SEC rule called Reg NMS, National Market System. What it means is that each one of those 15 exchanges, they put their best bids and their best offers together and they come up with they call with a composite market. The best bid, the national best bid, the national best offer. It's called the NBBO. Okay. National best bid and offer. So that NBBO, so let's say our one bid could very well be set by three, four, six, eight of the 15 exchanges all at the same time. At each one of those exchanges, you're going to have a variety of orders coming in from the public, market makers changing their mind to the point where, and this goes back to how things have changed on a tech basis, on one millisecond's worth of, of trading data, we had a question several years ago, on one millisecond, so one one thousandth of a second on a fairly well-traded option, we saw six different price and size changes inside of one one thousandth of a second. So when we're talking about the tick now, <laughs> it's gotten to the point where it's confusing even really what time is. Like, hey, is it really noon? Like whose noon is it exactly? That's how fast this marketplace is moving, which is so different than when I started when we were still doing trades with pencils and paper, right? So, But, it, but it's noon, just, I mean, to your point, noon, is a lot of milliseconds, right? Yes. And when you've got one millisecond, six price changes, that's the thing that boggles my mind. It's just amazing. So if we've got, if I go with my 110, if the NBBO, right, the national best bid and offer. So now, man, I'm really practicing without a license. You know, oh, our, no. our readers are like, there is no way Foley knows what he's talking <laughs> about here. So 
the NBBO, if it's a dollar and a dollar ten, and I enter an order, am I going to get the NBBO? Depends on, on how you send that order. And again, this gets to be very tricky, right? There's the difference between a limit price where you say, I will pay up to X price and no higher. And there's a market price. I am on a crusade to avoid market prices on options. I have seen more financial pain inflicted with something like that than, than I can describe. They're just really unsafe. And if I had my way, the industry would disallow it. Okay. Because if you move a price 50 cents from 110 to 160, that's a substantially different thing than if you move the price of a stock from $100 to 150 cents, right? You're talking about a 60% price change in, in against you. And I've seen it. I've been a part of it. And it's, it's usually on an order that came from a machine that, <laughs> that wasn't entered properly. So setting the market pricing aside, if you tell me that you want to pay 110 right now, the way most orders are shot, there are sort of two paths to the exchange. One is what they call the low touch path. It does use technology. It's something you get an order management system, some sort of app on your screen. You see the 110 offer. You say, I want to buy a hundred of those. You click send. Okay. That order is going to make its way down through a series of electronic pipes to an executing broker. That executing broker is required by rule to be your portal to the exchanges. They're supposed to watch out for your best interest. And they do a pretty good job, generally speaking. I've worked for several of them and they're very good at their jobs. They then take that 110 bid and they will then look on all 15 exchanges for you and say, okay, where can we go get and pay 110 for this? So that way you do get that 110 price. Another way is to send an order, if you have particularly a big order, to what they call an inter-dealer broker. And I'm going to give you all sorts of acronyms here. You are going to be excellent at cocktail parties at the end of this. <laughs> this is going to be, um, if I say, when you throw out insurance and options at a cocktail party, <laughs> come on. The people would just be to pass to your door, Gavin. Come on. You have a lampshade on right That's afterwards. right. It's perfect. So, yeah, the inter-dealer brokers, they're called IDBs. Their whole job is to try to see if they can find a better price for you than 110. So what they do is they start, they pick up the phone, they take your order, they'll hang up, they'll either start instant messaging people or calling people they know saying, hey, I've got this 110 bid, can you do any better for this guy? And maybe they'll find a 109, right? At which point then they'll put your bid, the offer they found together in what they call a cross order, that order then has to go, all option trades by rule have to go to exchanges. That rule will go to an exchange and it will print. So now you've gotten the 109, right? The problem is that it wasn't as fast as the technology has uh, that can take care of you. And there's, there's certain risks that are associated with that. It's also much more expensive. And that's really interesting to me. All right. So... I mean, you have an amazing background in options trading. You know this stuff inside out, and you founded Watershed Technologies. What does Watershed Technologies do? It's a very good question. My wife calls it Tinder for option traders. So, well, that's funny. I think it's... <laughs> it's <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's pretty accurate. It, it conjures a certain view, right? So what we do, our technology, the Tom, you know, is, is 
heavily involved in, plays the role of that inner dealer broker, right? It's a matchmaker. What we do instead of sending an order to someone who's going to call or instant message, we'll take that order into our system. We'll electronically fire out what they call requests for response and basically an indication of interest to our liquidity providers. Our liquidity providers are a series of you know, 10 different trading companies throughout the country, guys that we've known to be reputable and good price makers. They then respond and go back to our old example, a 110 bid. We'll say, hey, we've got a 110 bid for you know 1,000. Do you care? Their systems, now it's fast enough that they don't have any human interaction. It's a 15 millisecond process, right? Again, this is coming from a guy who used to do trades on pencil and paper. 15 milliseconds, we get response orders back from the liquidity providers. And we look to say, okay, hey, this guy wants to pay 110, our customer. I see some 109 offers and I see some 108 offers. So we're going to generate cross orders at 108 and 109. And then we're going to send them to the exchange through an executing broker to print. So again, that process, that inner dealer process of looking, trying to tease out better pricing. And truthfully, what we're trying to do is replicate the old process that we saw on the floor where the brokers were really fighting for their customer's best interest. That 109, 108, that's where the customer will print, not the 110 price. So the interesting thing is that the only way to get inside that 110 offer is either to, as we were discussing before, send a bid down to say pay 108 and hope you get filled, or you send it through us and you allow us to do that same process electronically so it's fast, and then we'll send it down if we find better prices for you. So that's really where we see our value at is we see the opportunity for our customers to get pricing that's better than what they see in the NBBO markets, a process that used to be natural to the industry, but that has gone away as computers have taken over. Right? So we use that auction technology to get them better fill prices. And, you know, again, we were talking about how each option, you know, is worth a hundred shares of stock for every penny you save, right? That's actually a buck. So for every thousand lot, if we save you two pennies on half and a penny on half, right? That's $1,500 that we just saved you. So it, that kind of savings that we drive back to our end users, especially as it cycles over time, really begins to add up to what their end of year take home looks like. And it's funny, we know how veiled it is because most people don't think about this piece of it. Most people are spending, and rightfully so, a lot of their time just thinking, all right, what's my strategy? What am I going to get done here? What do I want to accomplish? And we talk to a lot of portfolio managers. And you know, if they do 10% on their book in a year, that's not a bad year, right? With 6% inflation, you know, that gets to be a little bit more of a grind, right? This is the world we live in now. Now, if you use options, let's say you can augment that 10% by another 4%. Great. So your gross would be 14%. Your net would be more like 8 why would you want to give a chunk of that 8% back simply because you're not getting the best prices you can on your orders? And the, what we've seen is, honestly, and it's, it's remarkable, Stuart, you know, we've seen anywhere between 10 and 25% that these guys are simply giving away by not knowing that they could get better pricing through a different execution path. 
And that's the thing, right? It is people don't know. And when you say, and Tom said this to me, and you say that there's a 15 millisecond auction where you're checking with, call it 10 market makers and seeing if anybody cares at a level that your term was inside of 110, which means less than 110, which means I'm paying less for that option, which is good for me as the buyer, right? And so that 15 millisecond auction, that's all day, isn't it? I mean, in your world, I mean, 15 milliseconds is not, you're not, you know, like, what was the book? The Flash Boys. I mean, Flash you're not Boys. dealing in nanoseconds here. No. 15 milliseconds is a fairly long time, right? Yeah, it, it is, honestly. It, you know, it's, it's a short time versus the exchanges have auctions that are 100 milliseconds. But it is a fairly long time. It, it's done that way deliberately. So there is business in the option markets, just like there's business in the stock markets, the high-frequency traders, the, the low-latency traders where they have a very specific idea of what they want to do and they know exactly where they want to go to get it done. And you're right. They're talking nanoseconds. And so our process is designed inherently to screen that business away. We just don't want that business and they don't want to be, they don't want the delay. Right. Right. So when we have people sending us business, the comp really is the comparison really is against the more traditional IDBs when that can take minutes still, you know, while they work in order. There's also risk of information slippage as they're sending the order, calling around the street saying, hey, we've got this 110 buyer. So we can deliver that same benefit in what looks like lightning speed. Right. But the flip side to your point is it's slow enough deliberately to screen away some, I won't call it toxic. It's just a very different business model that the low latency guys use. And that, that doesn't fit what we're doing. We are looking to put, you know, traditional order centers together with traditional risk takers and not so much the low latency guys in between them. And that's to the benefit of both sides of that equation, right? I mean, insurance companies are using options for hedging long dated liabilities, right? I mean, when we're talking here about publicly traded options, right? I mean, there's there's a private options market as well, but that's not this market. We're talking about options that are publicly traded and prices are quoted and so on and so forth. I just want to make sure that we're on yeah. the same page with that. 100%, right? There are definitely relationships between the two markets. There are benefits to both sides. But yes, the listed, they call it publicly listed. So the listed option marketplace, the longest dated you can go out is about 30 months. The over-the-counter, the private market can go much longer than that. But what we see is oftentimes the over-the-counter market looks to then come into the listed marketplace and start trying to hedge its own risks sure. in there. The longest, and here's some more, some more industry lingo for you. The longest dated publicly listed options are called LEAPs. They trade very similarly. They have a relationship to the rest of the equity option market. They also have a relationship to the bond market. And so you know, the people that operate inside those, the trading companies like a lot of our liquidity providers, understand those relationships. The markets tend to be a little wider, but there's a whole series of reasons for that. And so industry use of options and how does that link back to Watershed's business model? Sure. So as you said, there's the long dated piece, 
And when we see a long dated option where we had the one to one 10 market on what we might consider a more short dated or normal option in the leap market, that same option might be three bid at four. So $3 bid at $4. Now, you know, that's a, the bid ask spread is a buck, right? Fully 33% of the bid price of the asset, right? (laughs) Of the security. However, while that seems like a lot in dollar terms, there's options can also be priced in what they called implied volatility, right? Some relatively fancy math that takes the probability of risk returns and then translates it into dollars, okay? While that $1 may look like a lot in terms of dollar pricing, in terms of implied volatility pricing, it may be only two or three points wide. So that $3 bid at $4 is actually to a trading firm looks a lot snugger, okay? That might be just two or three vol points big. Yeah, that's an interesting point because you've got, if I remember my options math, you've got time, you've got strike price, and you've got volatility. Right. And and two of those are known and pricing the volatility correctly or getting the volatility right, that's the secret sauce, right? Yeah, right, exactly. So just quick side note, while I was on the CBOE floor, they brought the Stanley Cup in a couple of times to a great ovation. Biggest applause I ever heard was when Myron Scholl stepped on the floor. Wow. They walked him out the floor and the entire trading stopped and it was thunderous. Everybody appreciated what that what he had done as part of that Black Scholes theory. It was really cool. You could see that he was really appreciating everybody. Yeah. So that was fun. But yeah, it's his math that won the Nobel Prize, right? And, right. and it does. It, you can figure out a series of factors, including time and, and interest rates and that sort of thing. And everything that's left in the price of that option is volatility, hence the implied volatility. Right. And so, yeah, it's it, to a trading firm, while it, it looks that dollar wide market looks pretty broad to the end user, to a trading firm, it's, it's not quite as broad. But to tie it back in to what we do, we then take that offers. Let's say we have some sort of insurer that wants to sell 2,500 of some set of long dated options for $3. We will take that process, that order into our process and say, hey, can you do any better than three? If we find better than three, or even if we find the same amount at three, we will marry those options up and then send them to the exchange, at which point then the insurer is guaranteed to fill at $3 or better. In the industry, they call that stopping the order at a price. You're stopped at three, you can only do better from there. And so even in that relatively narrow market in terms of implied volatility, because we're showing our orders out to such a diverse group of liquidity providers, we feel pretty good that we'll find at least someone willing to pay 305, 310. Those options tend to be priced in nickel and dime increments. And then we can get better prices again for the people who are trying to marry up and hedge their long dated liabilities against these assets. So, all right, I'm bearing my soul, Gavin, about what I don't know here. So, liquidity providers who are they right market makers so the one i know is ctc right here in chicago know a couple folks over there good people you know they are a market maker like what does a liquidity provider slash market maker do 
Fair enough. And yes, CTCR, good guys. Uh, like you, I know a lot of those guys, and, and Tom, of course, has some history there, right? So liquidity provider is probably the broader umbrella. Inside the liquidity provider can be a market maker, can be an off-floor trader, that can be a bank, can be a hedge fund, can be a whole series of different entities, can be individuals. As a local, I used to be a liquidity provider. Essentially, what a liquidity provider does is they see an order. And to have a trade happen, you have to have another side to the trade. So if you have a buyer, someone needs to be a seller, right? Now, one of the key differences between the options market and the stock market is the stock market is called an order-driven marketplace where there are specialists that will make prices on the floor, but most of that market is handled by having independent entities with a bid price and a sell price coming together and trading. There are only about 2,500 stocks that are listed in this country. And we just talked a little bit ago that there are over a million calls and puts listed. Because of the difference in scope between the two marketplaces, you can't always even though we talked about there are more than 40 million contracts trading a day and probably a multiple of that sitting around as, as resting orders, orders that haven't traded but may trade, you need help to make sure that that marketplace stays orderly. And so on stays, the one hand- Stays you, liquid, right? It needs to stay it, liquid. Literally when liquid. you say orderly, that means that you can continue to trade at right. prices that liquidity is defined as, as you can trade without substantial price degradation. Exactly. And that's when you say orderly, that's what that means, right? Exactly. It means that you can get a reasonable price. You know, During the flash crash, that was a disorderly market and the prices were, were very sketchy, right? But given, you know, normal, in air quotes, market conditions, yeah, liquidity is a reasonable bid price and a reasonable offer price with reasonable size attached so it's not I'm $1 bid at $10 for five contracts each. It's I'm $1 bid at a 110, 500 up, right? So now you've made a market where you can really start to transact inside that. So there are entities that stream quotes. They call them two-sided quotes, bids and offers simultaneously. Those are market makers. Those are entities that post prices on both sides of a marketplace for options all during the trading day. There are also a series of non-exchange liquidity providers trading from some of which used to be market makers and are no longer, who rather than streaming quotes, bids and offers on both sides, prefer to take those phone calls from the interdealer brokers and say, yeah, I'll, I'll participate there. I'll buy at that price. I'll sell at that price. And so you can tap into liquidity that exists off floor, off the exchange, as well as the liquidity that's on the floor at the exchange. And that's really, again, at the heart of what Watershed does, is we want to take your order and tap into that non-exchange liquidity as step one, only cost you 15 milliseconds, and then run the order down so it can be tapping into the exchange liquidity at the same time. That way you get two chances of talking to people who want to take the other side of your trade. And the only price you pay is a 15 millisecond bus stop. That gets me to the question of why are there different prices? And I think the answer is that, I mean, you know, you mentioned the Black-Scholes model, right? The options pricing model, which was I'm a, a self-admitted geek. I went to the University of Chicago and, and you know, Fisher Black, the other person, their yep. pictures are up there on the, on the wall. And I mean, I love this stuff, you know, but there's differences in 
the volatility assumptions by various market makers that create these price differences. Is that fair? Is that correct? No, it's 100% accurate. Agreed. Yeah. And that stems from a whole series of things. They could be using different models. So, you know, post Black Shoals, there are a whole series of different models that have come out. You know, some are far more complex. You know, and speaking to your audience, I know that there are rafts of quants that work in their shops that are way smarter than I am. That's maybe not the highest bar to clear, but uh, that can come <laughs> right. But that they look, these guys can generate models that I can't even conceive of that tie things together. And depending on the sophistication of the person making the price, that'll affect which model they're using. There are also other pieces to it, including you know, whatever options as opposed to stock or futures traders. Option traders generally don't go home flat. In other words, they don't go home with no positions on whatsoever. Most option traders, by default or by design, carry inventory with them. And so depending on the inventory they're carrying, that's going to affect their worldview on prices. And that worldview on prices is going to you know, drive down all the way to the you know, most atomic level of any particular call and put. And so depending on what model they're using, how they see the world, what their strategic projections are and what their inventory is, you do get a whole series of different prices. Now, one of the tricky parts in the marketplace today, and we hear a lot of complaints about this, is what they call phantom liquidity. So on our NBBL, right, we may see one bid at 110 and there may be a thousand at each price point to sell at 110, a thousand and buy at one. Oftentimes we'll hear complaints that when someone tries to go pay 110, they won't get the full thousand they'll get some fraction of that. And some of that is the exchange liquidity providers seeing that trade and starting to pull back so that they don't really want to sell at 110. And it, it can be very frustrating to end users. Our goal is to bring a more diverse group of liquidity into contact with that order first. Again, this goes back to trying to recreate what we saw as some of the strengths of the old open outcry model bring more diverse liquidity providers with different worldviews, different pricing into contact with that order first, and then let the exchange liquidity see it, react to it, perhaps improve on it. So it is interesting that the business model by design is intended to tap into that differential in terms of option pricing. That's one of our explicit goals. It's almost like you're bringing virtual locals back to the options market. That's actually the way a lot of our end users describe it. Uh, now, you may have to have gray hair to know what that really means, but uh, that's <laughs> well, precise. You and I, you and I both, you and I both qualify on that one. So it's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I, I don't walk around with a brightly colored jacket in the loop anymore. But yeah, I mean, back in the day, that was sort of a badge of honor. People knew what you were doing. It was, it was an entertainment culture. Absolutely. I remember seeing folks with the jackets on. I mean, just as uh, from a nostalgia perspective, not only was there a jacket, but there's also letters sewn on it, right? So what are the, yeah. what are the jacket? Can you just a little bit for that? Sure. Yeah. So in the trading jacket, it was, it was quite the outfit. We used to uh, leave them up in our office. Now, in New York, they're still very much on wearing actual dress coats and ties. And when I first time I walked on the New York Stock Exchange floor, I had to smile because it was, it was, it was far more formal than 
the ways the Chicago uh, system operated. We did have these trading jackets, often brightly colored. And when you were in a, in a competitive pit, look, you needed to make sure you were getting the attention of the broker. Now, we haven't had a chance to hang out. And I was laughing when you said that you've got former traders on both sides. It's probably fairly noisy. My my daughter calls me the loudest human being on the planet, right? There was a certain natural selection that you had to be able to project your voice, right? But in addition to that, you had to have something that would draw their eye to you, particularly if it was a competitive marketplace. Then we had these, these ties that were sort of a joke that no one ever pulled. They were sort of slung over, and some of the ties were just in horrific shape. It was pretty funny. But then you'd have trading cards packed into both pockets to make sure that you had calls and puts, buys. You'd have your pencils so in case a pencil snapped off in the middle of an order, you didn't you know, lose it. And then you would have your trading badge. And you're right, you would have what we call a TOT, right? Which in my trading acronym was ROE, right? And there are all sorts of people who in this business today, I still don't know their real name. I know them by their TOT. Right. There's still a, a broker on the CBOE, Kevin Kennedy, goes by KGK, who's just a legend in the business. And they may not know Kevin Kennedy, but if you bring up KGK to anybody in the industry, I guarantee you'll get a reaction out of them. That's He's one cool. of the funniest guys I've ever met. But it was great and it was a lot of fun. Now, look, there were some sketchy personalities in there. But for the people that were able to survive that very Darwinian experience, it's a, it's a brotherhood and a sisterhood. I think that's awesome. I have learned so much from you about options. I can't thank you enough for being on. We just have one more question. It's the Ask Me Anything portion of the podcast. You mentioned you started at the CBOE. Do you remember your first day? I do. What I remember you, my first trade. You remember your first trade? Oh, nope. I, I even remember the first market I made. All right. So it's your first day. And you run into Gavin Rowe today. What do you tell that kid that just walked onto the floor for the first time? Take more risk. Amen. I had a good, a good career and I look back on it. And I wish I would have been willing to swing for the fences a bit more often, but uh, I will say this, that uh, there was a lot of rule bending around. And one of the things I've learned in this industry is that if you throw away your reputation, you'll never get it back. God, so, oh, that's, so, that's so true. And we, and we look, we trade on that here. The relationships we have in this business come so often through personal guarantees. If I tell you that this is a trustworthy place to trade, in addition to whatever surveillance, whatever else we're doing, that's a, a, my word right? That was something that was built up over 20 years of trading. So that piece, I would guard with my life. I would love to tell myself, hey, it's okay. It's okay to lose a little bit of money sometimes, take more risk. I love that. And I, you know, I taught for a number of years. The reputation piece is really worth focusing on because, you know, I used to tell my students, I'm like, all you've got in this business is your reputation. That's it. I mean, you cannot survive in, in this industry for a long time for all the shenanigans that get headlines. The overwhelming majority of people I've dealt with have been very ethical, bright, good folks. But, you know, I mean, you know, bond trading, you know, when you're going to buy, you know, 125, $150 million of, of, you know, mortgage pass throughs and, you know, all you're saying is you're done. You know, if can you imagine a company building a hundred and fifty million dollar building with no contract? You just go, you're done, and that's it, and you just wait. 
I mean, there's a lot, a lot of money that trade that changes hands over, you know, somebody just on their reputation. And it's a really, really important point for people, particularly early in their careers to know. I, I agree with that. And it, just to emphasize that point, it, as we've gone into a more electronic world, there is that sort of separation. I think we see it on social media as well in terms of that kind of behavior. And, and I'm not on Twitter so I, I have no idea, but I hear what the trolls do. But I know from watching electronic trading, the things get said to each other and about people that would never have been said on the trading floor. Because first of all, you'd have to back that up, which you know may be the overhanging forehead approach, but it did at least limit a lot of stuff. The other part is that you knew that you were going to have to be dealing with this this business the next day too. And so there was a long view toward managing relationships with customers. And to your point, if you say you're up and you're done and you back out of that, that your career is essentially over. No one will trust you again, right? And so you, you learn to be careful about when you say that, but then when you do say that, you have to own that. And again, because the guys in this firm are not 25, we have we have our you know our code writers who are young enough who are much more talented than I am. But when it comes to the business leadership, we still take that ethos and look. If we're going to get this done for you, you're good. We'll we'll write a contract, but you can take that as my word. Absolutely, I love that, Gavin Rowe, CEO, founder of Watershed Technologies. Gavin, thanks for being on. Thanks, Stuart. Love it. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas, email me, Stuart, at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast.